Well, since this is my first time speaking on a Sunday morning to Fellowship Bible Church, I thought I would start right off with a challenge. So some of you, I know, take notes on a regular basis, and some of you don't. Well, my points this morning will be, and some of my sub-points as well, will be words that start with the letter C. So if you are one of those who take notes, my challenge to you is to compile a list on the side of my C words today. And if you're one that does not take notes, then I encourage you to make a copy of the list of the C words so that you can contemplate on them later. So as we look today at the character of David and a chapter of his life in church, if you have the courage to accept my challenge, and even if you think it's a little cheesy, and copy down a list of the C words, if you're consistent with your compilation, I think you will find it contagious, and you will be compelled to continue until completed for future contemplation. (laughs) Well, many of you know, I enjoy sports, and NASCAR is my favorite sport, and yes, NASCAR is a sport. But my second favorite sport, and a close second, is football. And of course, it's a great time of the year as football is ready to kick off. I have my college team and I have my pro team. My college team, being that I grew up in Ohio, is Ohio State Buckeyes. And uh, before you start booing and stuff, just realize that they are rated number six in the AP poll. 23rd consecutive year they've been rated in the AP poll. Longest streak of any college anywhere. So, got to put that out there. (laughs) My pro football team is Minnesota Vikings. I know, okay. Well, when I was a kid, I enjoyed Fran Tarkington running around, and when I'm a fan, I stick with my team. So, in my home, my oldest son decided that he would be a Green Bay fan. So imagine this week in my house when Brett Favre is now wearing the number four Minnesota Viking uniform. Uh, he's, He's quite confused about what he should do, and I'm enjoying it. But I don't only like to watch football, I like to play football. And I don't play near as much now as I used to. Um, But there was uh, about 15 years ago when I was on the youth staff at IBC with Pastor Van. At this time of the year, many afternoons, we would get the teens together and we would play tackle football. And yes, we played tackle football. Wasn't the wisest thing to do, but back then we did some crazy things. And I remember one Sunday afternoon, we were playing tackle football in the outback. And one of the guys caught the ball and was coming across in front of me, and I had a great shot on him, so I took it. And I wrapped him up, and as we were going sideways and we were being, I was tackling him, he kind of had the ball out funny. So I reached over and I punched the ball, and the ball fell out of his hands. So then I wanted to recover, so I kind of tossed him aside as I dove back onto the ball. Well, this leg stayed where it was while the rest of my body went the other way, and my knee it did something it wasn't supposed to do. I think Paul Scott can relate to this a little bit. And I tore my ACL and my meniscus. They had to take the meniscus out and put a new ACL in, so that meant surgery. So I had the surgery, and when I woke up from surgery, this was 15 years ago, and it's come a long way, but back then we had this huge brackety brace on, and they had these ratchets so that you'd have to have your legs straight for a while, and as it healed, they would adjust the, the tension, and you could bend it and get a little more flexibility to it. But the whole time that was going on, I had to be on crutches. Now, I'm sure some of you have been on crutches. My experience with crutches was I didn't like them. 
They hurt underneath my arms. They were cumbersome. That slowed me down. Uh, Of course, it allowed me to walk at that point, but it took a while for me to get used to these crutches. But eventually I did, and then I could kind of tool around pretty good, and sometimes I would even be leaning on them, and I wouldn't even realize that I had crutches at the time. But eventually my leg got better, and it was time to take the crutches, put the crutches away, put weight back on the leg in order for it to heal and get strong and be the way that it needed to be. Our Christian lives sometimes are like this. We have crutches in our life. Sometimes we need these crutches, and they're beneficial, but there comes a time to put the crutches away. But sometimes in our Christian lives, we have crutches that we never needed to start with, and it keeps us from developing and being what God would have us to be. Well, today, if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Samuel 27, and we're going to take a look at the life of David at a time when he lost his confidence in God, and he depended on crutches that he put in his life. And we're going to read the, the, chapter, the whole chapter here, in verse, uh, starting with verse 1, 1 Samuel 27. But David thought to himself, One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hands. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Moak, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Gershites, the the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur in Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkey and camels and clothes... Then he returned to Achish. When Achish asked, Where did you go raiding today? David would say, Against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jamil, or against the Negev of Kenites. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, This is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in the Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to himself, He has become so odious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant forever. Well, just a little background to make sure we're on the same page of where David is at. David, this is King David. He's not king yet. He is the boy who was anointed by Saul or Samuel uh, when he was about 15 or 14 years old. He's the boy who battled Goliath the giant and slew him. He became uh, part of... King Saul's army and rose in ranks and defeated many, many Philistines until one time the king gets jealous and his jealousy builds and then eventually he's trying to kill David and eventually David flees and runs away. And as David flees and he's been on the run now for many years from Saul and his troops looking for him, it gets us to this point where one day he wakes up 
And he says, I thought to myself, as that begins. It begins, I thought to myself. The first thing, the first point, is that David chose and lost his confidence in God. David lost his confidence in God. He decided, it starts with, I thought to myself. He never looked to God for answers. He never prayed and asked God's direction and guidance. He did not go to counsel of others and what he should do at this time. He basically hits a panic button here because he starts thinking to himself. The problem with when we think to ourselves is we can misguide ourselves so easily if we rely on our own knowledge and not looking to the Father and not looking to wise counsel. And that's where David is. Time has a way of doing that sometimes, wearing us down and making us make decisions maybe that we shouldn't have made. But the first point there is that he began to think to himself. And that's 27.1. And as we continue in 27.1, it says, But David thought to himself, and what does he think? One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. He's now telling the future. Of course, no one knows the future. David didn't know the future. Only God knows the future. But since... He has lost his confidence in God. He's looking to his own knowledge. His eyes are on himself. He's basically horizontal, not looking vertical. And then, therefore, he starts to have the wrong types of thoughts and looks on the downside of what's going to happen. You see, we need to understand that David just came off of a very spiritual high. Twice... King Saul was put into his hands, once in a cave, and he cut off a piece of his garment. And here, right before this chapter, he was given King Saul in the camp where he could have killed him. But David knew that it was wrong for him to kill God's anointed king, that that was God's place to do. And he was exalted and lifted up because he didn't do that. He was going to go kill Nabal for dishonoring him and his troops, but God sent Abigail, Nabal's wife, to him to remind him reaffirmed to him that he was going to be king and that when he's king, he doesn't want innocent bloodshed. So he was reminded he was going to be king. He had opportunities here. He was on a spiritual high of making great decisions. And now we find out all at once he makes a bad decision. You know, sometimes it's right after that spiritual high or that success is when we find ourselves the most vulnerable. My kids play soccer, sports, and... They're taught, and statistically speaking, it's true. The time in which the other team scores most of the goals is right after you scored a goal. Because that's at the moment when you have a little letdown. You maybe relax a little bit. The other team's a little more charged up. And before you know it, you're a step behind, and they're heading in for that goal. It reminds me of Elijah, the story of Elijah, when he by himself, one prophet of God, took on 450 prophets of Baal, when Baal worship was the thing. And they went up to Mount Carmel, and they prepared a cow and put it on the altar, but they weren't allowed to burn it. And the point was, they had to pray to their gods. Baal would pray to Baal gods. He would pray to the true God. And if fire came down and consumed it, then all the people would know who the true God was. The 450 Baal priests were praying all day long, and of course, nothing happened. And then come evening, it was Elijah's turn, and he prayed. And before he prayed, he had them take four buckets of water and pour it over his sacrifice three consecutive times. 
completely doused it. Even the trench around it was filled up with water. But when he prayed, fire came down. His sacrifice was consumed. The rocks were consumed. The ground was consumed. The water was lapped up. And everybody knew that he was the true God that Elijah served. And then they took the Baal guys and they executed them. So all the Baal priests were slaughtered. Right after this, Jezebel finds out what he did. And she says, I'm going to kill him. That's what she says. I'm going to kill him. So what's he do? He runs and he hides and he goes into place and he says, I give up. Lord, just take my life. I am done with this. I can't handle it anymore. Right after such a spiritual high, he had an issue. But of course, God sustained him and brought him through that. But those are the times when we need to guard ourselves is after those spiritual highs. David had a spiritual high in following God and now he's to a point where he actually chooses to do something that he shouldn't. He looks at the downside of things, which causes him to worry. When we're in those times, one of the things that we should do is remember what God has done for us. God is good all the time. And he's done so much for us. David ignored or chose to forget what God has done for him. God, as a boy, when he was 15 years old, Samuel comes to his house. All of his brothers are marched in front of Samuel. And Samuel says, no, none of these. And he won't even let them sit down until they send out in the field for David, who's watching the flocks. And when David comes in, God says to Samuel, he's the one. And Samuel anoints him and tells him, God said, you'll be king. Samuel, the last judge, the first prophet of Israel, anointed David to be king as he was a boy. About a year later, he fights Goliath. Remember Goliath the giant from Gath? David takes a stone, slings it, Hits him in the head, cuts his head off with, with his own sword, with the Goliath's own sword. God showed him his power through him. But David forgot what God did for him there. Jonathan comes to David one day when David had to flee. And Jonathan reminds David or tells David, I know you'll be king. You will be king. I will be second. This is Jonathan, the son of the king, the rightful heir to the throne, tells David... You're going to be king, I'm going to be second. And even King Saul himself, when David spared his life in the cave, afterwards said, David, I know that you will be king and God will establish the kingdom in your hands. So he had all these things confirming what God was going to do for him. But he woke up one morning and he says, I got to get out of here because I'm going to get killed. We sometimes forget what God does for us and we need to remind ourselves daily of what God does. So let's continue in verse 1. He says, One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hands. The best thing I can do. That's just rationalizing. Again, he wasn't looking at God. He thinks for himself, and, and he looks a little bit at the bleak side of things. And he says, you know what? The best thing I can do is run to the Philistine territory. The best thing I can do is go live in the enemy's territory. That's how we rationalize things. Aren't we good at that? We want to make a decision that we know maybe isn't the right decision. But we're going to find a way to rationalize it and try to make it make sense so that we can justify our actions and what we're doing. That's all that he was doing here. He was simply rationalizing what he was going to do. Many of us say, well, it's my life. I can make the decisions. I'll handle the consequences. It doesn't affect you. It's my life. 
The truth is, the decisions always affect other people. Always. They will affect the people that look up to you. They will affect the people that love you. They will affect the people that depend on you. They affect the people that trust you. And many times when we make choices that are outside of the will of God for us, when we make choices that are wrong, the innocent people around us become contaminated by our choices. Let's look and see what happened here. Verse 2 and 3. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Moak, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam and Jezreel. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. The troops go with David. There's 600 men that he had. These are the men that came to him when he was in the caves. These are the men that he's trained, he's fought with, he's shed blood with. He knew that they were going to go with him. These men go with him to the enemy's territory. But not only these men go, their entire households, their wives, their children, and all of their possessions. David's decision to go live in the enemy's territory affected a multitude of people. And they all go with him. And of course, David's two wives went with him as well. And then where does he go? He goes to Gath. Remember Goliath? I said of Gath. This is Goliath's hometown. This isn't the first time that David fled to Gath, which is kind of another great decision that David made. Shortly after he fled the first time from King Saul years ago, he didn't have a sword. He went to Ahimelech, the priest, and the only sword he had there was Goliath's sword. He says, oh, that's great. There's no sword like that. So he takes Goliath's sword. And then David, running from Saul, runs to Gath. He had just conquered their champion. Saul's chasing him, so he runs to Gath. He's killed many Philistines. You've got to wonder, and he's got the sword of Goliath. What was he thinking? So he goes into town of Gath, and the men say... Isn't that King David? Isn't that the woman singing the song about David? Uh, Saul killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And here David is standing there with the sword of Goliath on his belt. And he gets afraid. And this is years ago. So what he does is he acts like a madman. And he starts scratching at the post and he lets saliva drool down the side of his face. And King Achish at the time thinks he's crazy and says, Don't I have enough crazy guys here? Get him out of here. We don't need crazy guys. So he, he got away. He escaped. But now years have passed. And they now know that Saul's chasing him and that he is Saul's adversary. He's no longer fighting with Saul's army. So they're more receptive to receive him at this time. So he goes there. But make no mistake, a couple of things that Gath represents. It's the enemy's territory. And it is a place that is outside of the will of God for David. It represents a place that's outside of the will of God. So the second point is that David chose a crutch. He depended on something other than God. He chose to go live in the enemy's territory. 1 Samuel 27, 4. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. One of the things that happens is he finds temporary relief, which is a false sense of security. The decision to live in the enemy's territory provided a false sense of security. He thought he was safe. 
had his success and that Saul had stopped chasing him. There was a relief of the pressure that he was under at the moment. Make no mistake about it, we acknowledge that sin has temporary pleasure. There is pleasure in sin. But it is always short-lived and it never brings complete satisfaction. Another thing about this choice is it caused him to become submissive to the enemy's cause. Verse 5. Then David said to Achish, I have found, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? When we choose to disobey God, when we choose the wrong path, we are choosing to support the adversary's cause. Now, we may not say we support the adversary, but we are supporting his cause. And he will use that to ruin our testimony, to ruin your credibility, to hurt other people around you, to limit what you're able to do in the future for God's glory. Satan always uses our downfalls. Be strong in the Lord. But he had to submit. David actually calls himself a servant of King Achish. And he was. So let's continue on. Six and seven. So on that day, King Achish gave him Ziklag. And it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in the Philistine territory a year and four months. Ziklag is a city. Its exact location is unknown. We do know a couple of things about it uh, from Joshua 15.31. We know that it was in the territory given to the tribe of Judah when they were coming to take possession of the land. And more specifically in Joshua 19.5, it was given, that city was given to the tribe of Simeon within the Judah territory. And all commentaries and everything that I can read, they pretty much did take over and took control of that town and that city. So it became part of the Israelites area. But... What was common and what happened in those days when the Israelites came and the tribes took the possession of the land allotted to them, they were to completely annihilate, I shouldn't try that word, get rid of the people in the, in the land. But they didn't. They didn't completely get rid of all of them. And the Philistines were one of the people groups that they did not completely remove. They were along the uh, Great Sea. There were some fortified cities there that they didn't remove. And the Philistines grew in strength. And for years, the Philistines then fought with Israel. And they retook Ziklag. So again, Ziklag, even though it was allotted to Israel, at this point is in the enemy's territory. And, of course, it represents a crutch that David went to where he depended on the, the luxuries and the ability of the city to protect him and to be able to do the things he wanted instead of depending truly on God. It was a place of conflict for him in God's plan. And then the last thing I see with that is that it was a lengthy period of compromise. I am sure that David didn't think he was going to be there for more than a year, a year and four months to be exact, but he was a long time. Sin has a pull. It has a way of dragging you in. And time can pass very quickly before you realize how far you've gone. We end up forming some scars when we're in sin. You know, scars, an uh, area of your skin that heals from a cut. That scar is less sensitive than the rest of your skin. It's a little tougher than the other part of your skin. It's not as attractive as the other part of your skin. And that's what sin does to us. It causes scars and makes us a little tougher. When we are convicted of sin in our lives 
as Christians. We have a choice to make. We can choose at that moment to repent and get right with God, or we can choose to continue in our flesh. And as we choose to continue in our flesh, we get further and further away from God, making it harder and harder to come back. And that's the path that Satan wants us to follow. So it was a lengthy period of compromise. He was there for 16 months. And I think it's interesting, during that 16 months, David was also known as the Israelite singer of songs, or the sweet psalmist. He wrote many of our psalms. There was not a single psalm written during this 16-month period that he lived in the enemy's territory. The sweet psalmist had ceased writing his songs. His talent that God had given him was not being used for God when he was in the enemy's territory. So, because of his lost confidence and choosing to go to the enemy's territory, he starts to live, point three, a carnal lifestyle. We don't talk much about the carnal Christian, a carnal lifestyle. We talk about the lost and how we're going to reach the lost. The Jefferson County Fair is a way of doing that. And what else can we do? And we talk about the saints and how they're succeeding in here or there or how we can become better Christians or what we should do. But a lot of times we don't talk about that Christian who is truly saved but has chosen to do things that are not worth the Christian's time, to live in sin, to live in the flesh. I think David here is an example of a true believer on the inside, but on the outside, he's trying to look like the world. He's trying to make them believe he's a traitor, that he's not an Israelite anymore, that he's conforming to their area. One of the problems with a carnal lifestyle is it becomes very complicated to live. Duplicity reigns. Duplicity by Webster's Dictionary is deception by pretending. Deception by pretending. David is caught in trying to live both ways. He truly is an Israelite, but he wants them to think that he's not. And he has to choose his words very carefully. So that leads us to compromise. He has to compromise. And when he goes on and he raids in the south, as, as we read on here, and he comes back and King Achish asking, well, where did you... Uh, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jamil, or against the Negev of the Canaanites. Well, Negev is a Hebrew word. Um, it can mean dry, which would indicate the southern side of Judah, the dry part. But more so, especially in the tense that it was used here, it means south. So when he would say the south of Judah. King Achish would understand that to mean the southern part of Judah. But what he was really saying was even further south. South of that yet is where the Amalekites were, and that's where he was raiding. So he was using words that he could say, I wasn't lying, but he was definitely deceiving. When you get caught in a carnal lifestyle, one of the first things that happens is you have to be very careful of your words, and you start trying to make false statements so that the people you're trying to impress will believe what it is, but you can still feel good that maybe you didn't really say a lie. But even that come short and eventually the lies start to happen. It will lead to a lie. And that's what the next part is. David lied. An outright lie where he was when it says uh, against the Negev of Jamil and against the Negev of the Kenites. Those were lies. Those were straight out lies. And there's nothing else can be said other than that he had to start lying and then it led to cover-ups. 1 Samuel 27, 11. 
He did not leave a man or a woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us. This is what David did, and such was his practice as long as he lived in the Philistine territory. He killed everyone, not just the men, but the women, the babies, the children, everyone, to protect his secret. When we're living in a life of carnality, we don't like questions. It reveals too much. A life of carnality certainly doesn't like accountability. They like secrets. Accountability, accountability partners, we encourage that so much. Because when we're ready to make that wrong decision, if you have that accountability person that you're reporting to, they can help steer you back. We're not making those decisions on our own. As a parent, ask questions of your teens. As a neighbor or friend, ask questions of your friends. Don't be embarrassed to ask questions. You'd be surprised how that can bring somebody back from a choice that they're going to make. Carnality doesn't like questions or accountability. You know, it reminds me of a story. In college, there was a student who had to give a speech. And he was down front and he gives a, starts his speech off with the statement, What you believe will be evidenced by how you act, not what you say. And then he began to explain what a pendulum was. You know, a pendulum kind of hangs, and if you bring it over, it's like the bottom thing of a clock that's going back and forth. The law of the pendulum with gravity says every time it swings, if there's no other action on it, it will get shorter and shorter until eventually it comes back to a rest in the middle. And he went through all the physics, had a little demonstration, and asked, now who here believes in the law of the pendulum? Everybody in the class raised their hand, including the professor. The professor thought he was done, started to walk down to the front of the class to get the next student up. And he says, I'm not quite finished yet, but I will use your help as the professor walked down front. There was a table there, and it was up against a cement block wall. And then he took a chair, and he set it up on the table, up against the cement black wall, block wall. And he asked the professor if he would sit in the chair. So the professor did, and he sits in a chair, and he puts his back of his head up against the block wall. And then the student releases from the steel rafters above a huge steel ball suspended on a cable. And he pushes this big ball over to the professor and he touches the tip of his nose with it. And he asks him, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? Well, the professor didn't answer, but he let go anyway. Whoosh! The pendulum swings to the far side of the room and you can just kind of see it hang for a second still as it begins to make its trek back. Whoosh! It's coming back. And the professor's eyes are getting bigger and bigger as this big steel ball is heading for his face. And when he gets fairly close, he jumps off the table and dives out of the way. And the ball would have stopped before it ever hit him. See, he believed in the law of the pendulum but not enough to put his entire trust in life in that faith. Do you believe in Jesus Christ enough to put your entire faith and trust in his hands even in the difficult times? Keep your eyes on God, not on yourself. And that will give you the strength to trust in the Lord. Well, ultimately, in a carnal lifestyle, confusion Confusion is what happens. It becomes a fast downward spiral. Downward spiral. 
as we go forward in, in the next few chapters, we'll see that the Philistines are gathering their army to fight Israel. And the king goes to David and says, David, you live here now. We expect you to fight with us. David is a little conflicted. He has to make some choices. And he says, great. Well, on that day, you'll see what I can do. Probably being a little vague again. Did that mean that on that day, he'll fight for him and he'll see what he can do? Like King Achish would mean? Or does that mean what we probably think it means? That he'll turn on them and fight and he'll see how good a fighter I am when I turn on you. Being vague with his speech still. But David and his men even march to the staging point, getting ready for the battle. What are they going to do? You know, David is here because he was fleeing from Saul for his life. Now, if he turns in battle, he'll be in the middle or the back part of the army. He is more than likely, him and all of his men would get killed in that type of a turn if they did it. But the men there have concerns. You see, God is still at work. We serve a God who is active and alive in our lives. And he cares about us. And he intervenes. And the Philistine men and the armies that are there say, "Uh, King, we don't trust David. You know, I know he's been here for a while, but he used to kill us. And what better way for him to get back in the good graces of the king but to turn on us in battle? You know, if he goes, I'm not going. I'm not going. And they said, come on, he's been with me for years. I've never found fault with him. No way. If he goes, I don't go. So finally the king goes to David and said, David, I'm sorry. I love you, buddy, but you got to go home. The guys, the guys just don't trust you. And he's like, oh, but what did I do? I want to fight for my lord and my king. Well, again, being vague, who's his lord? Who's his king? Is it King Achish or is it King Saul? But... He says, I'm sorry, David, you got to go. God protected David in this point, and he had to go. See, God had, there's a difference in God's permissive will and God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will said, David, you will be king. He anointed him king. There is no decision David could make that would alter that decision. He was going to be king. Whether it be a good king or a bad king, David had some choices to make. But he was going to be king. That's God's sovereign will. God's permissive will allowed David to go to live in the enemy's territory, allowed him to go to Ziklag for a time. Well, if we flip to chapter 30, we'll see the end of that year and four months of what actually happens. And we'll come to the consequences. Chapter 30, verse 1, David and his men reached Ziklag. This is after they got kicked out of the army here. On the third day, now the Amalekites had raided the Negev of Ziklag, they had been attacked. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept out loud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been catch, captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters, but David found strength in the Lord. The first consequence is chaos. They come back 
and they find Ziklag burned, completely destroyed. Everything gone. All the people gone. Now, unlike David, when he went raiding the Amalekites and killed everybody, God protected his family and they were taken captive, not killed. But they were all gone and missing. And then it tells us that they wept until they had no more strength to weep. Have you ever been hurt so deeply that you cried until you couldn't cry anymore? You know the bitterness of spirit that you feel, the hurt and the pain and the anguish? Can you identify with the pain that David is in, that the 600 men are in at this point? Such deep pain. You see, when we live in carnality, sin eventually gets exposed. And when your sin is exposed, there's always pain that comes with that. It's always pain. And then the other consequence is distrust. Of course, the Philistines didn't trust him anymore. They sent him away. Now his own men, the 600 fighting men that he trained and fought and bled with, that have lived with him in this town for the last year and four months, are talking of stoning him. They don't trust him anymore. They don't like his decisions. They see where it's led them. They've lost trust. But finally, God gets David's attention. David's convicted of where he stands. See, David was called the man after God's own heart. Saul was rejected by God. They both made bad choices. What makes the difference? Why was Saul rejected and David was called a man after God's own heart? It's because how they responded typically, or in their pattern of response, when they were confronted with their sin. When Saul was confronted with his sin, he would typically make excuses, do the blame game, blame others, never take responsibility. But David would take responsibility, try to do restitution if possible, accept the consequences, and get right with his father. That's what made him a man after God's own heart. That's what made him different. King Saul. And here it says, for the first time in 16 months, David goes vertical. David looked to the Lord. See, the burning of Ziklag wasn't to destroy David. It was to bring him to his knees so that he would look up. And when he did, God answered. And God restored everything that was lost. All the women, all the men, all the animals, all the gold, all the stuff was restored to them. Nothing was found missing. But one thing was not restored. That was Ziklag. Ziklag was left destroyed because God wanted to move him from the enemy's territory to home. He wanted him to come home. Perhaps you know the joy of living a Christian life. But perhaps you've made some decisions that's led you to live in the enemy's territory. To live in carnality. Perhaps you know somebody that's doing that. The Father's calling. Come home. Come home. You know, we looked at, at David's life, and I mentioned the, the list of C's. He lost his confidence. He chose a crutch. He lived carnally. It became complicated. He had to compromise. Led him to cover-ups, led to confusion, consequences, chaos, and finally conviction.
and David came home. Pastor Paul Washer tells a story that I think fits here very nicely. It's about a lady who lived just outside of Rio de Janeiro. She was very poor. And she had a daughter that she loved very much. A very beautiful daughter. But her greatest fear was that someday her daughter would run off to Rio to find a better life because she would tire of living the way that they had to live. And not long after that, she came home one day and her greatest fear was realized. There was a note on the wall, gone to Rio to find a better life. Well, devastated, the mother gathered all the money she had, which wasn't much, got a bus ticket, went into Rio. When she got to Rio, the first thing she did was get in one of those photo booths and put a lot of money in there to get a lot of pictures, those little pictures of herself. And then she started scouring Rio. She looked in the hospitals. She looked in the hotels. She looked in the bars and the discotheques. Anywhere she could think of. And every time she would go to a place to look, she would leave a picture of herself somewhere there. Some time went by. She ran out of money. She didn't find her daughter. She had to go home. So she went home. A little while later, her daughter was walking down the steps of a hotel room. She'd been with a man. She'd become a prostitute. Her face is sunken. She's looked 15 years older than she was. There was a mirror at the bottom of the steps and she was looking in the mirror at how she looked and she just wanted to die. And something caught her eye. Off to the side was a picture. It was a picture of her mom. And she grabbed the picture. She couldn't believe it. And she was looking at it. And upon closer examination, she turned it over. And there was words written on the back. And on the back of the picture, it said, I don't care what you've become. I don't care what you've done. Please come home. Isn't that what Jesus Christ is saying to us? That he died on the cross? Isn't that what God our Father is calling to us? I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've become. Please come home. If there's something in your life that you have not yielded to the Father, if there's something in your life that leads you to look like the world and you're trying to look like the world and you're living in carnality, you need to get right with God. Come home. Today's the day. Sit in that chair. Put your whole faith in God. Because He cares for you. And He is capable to take care of you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for David. As he gives us hope. He was a man that failed many times, but kept coming back to you. Kept being restored to a right relationship. Father, if there's somebody here that needs to do business with you now, I pray that they do it now. They can come talk to me or one of the elders or somebody up front or sit in their chair right now and do business. But don't let them, don't let them go without doing business with you. Help us, Father, to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to you, not just superficially, not just on Sundays, but truly sold out, dedicated to you 100%. Help us, Father, to not live in carnality. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.